0: Listen, I don't usually try to tease that you need to stick around to the end of an episode to make sure you hear the amazing reveal, because I actually think that's a little bit manipulative. I'd prefer to put my best up up front and then make everything else even better than that. I don't know how that's possible. But anyway, there is an exception to every rule, and the exception to the rule is this week, because my guest... Dolan Morgan, has an amazing story about how you can use goats to market your book. If you don't think goats is a creative marketing tactic, I'm really not sure what is. And then my story about goats, after his story about goats, is equally good because, I don't know if you know this, but an entire town in the state of Oregon was once shut down by a herd of goats. That's right, goats took over a town in Oregon, you don't want to miss that story, so please enjoy my conversation with... Dolan Morgan. Hey, I'm the Reluctant Book Marketer, and I've got just one question for you. Do you see your novel as a million-dollar asset? Because if you don't, and you want to, you're in the right place. This is the only show for novelists who want to shift their mindset away from fear and toward abundance. Because you can sell more books than you ever dreamed when you believe in what you're doing.
1: I am uh, primarily like a short story writer. I also do some um, short comics. I've been working on like a, like a musical slash opera thing, but whatever. I'm primarily a, a short story writer. Um, and that journey began for me when I was a little kid. It's just kind of always the form that I've been most attracted to. Uh, you know, I wasn't writing um, novels when I was 10 years old. Like, you know, I hear about people saying they did that, um, you know, uh, as little kids. I, but I was writing short stories. So it's just always been something that I feel drawn to a way as a way to, like, process the world around me, process what I'm going through, uh, make sense of things. Um, and that's continued pretty much my entire life. Had the opportunity um, I'm really grateful for it to put out two short story collections, um, and I'm continuing to publish new stories uh, recently um, in the midst of cobbling together this third collection that I'm ready to start sending out to folks, which I'm pretty excited about.
0: Having started your writing journey so early, I can't imagine you were thinking a ton about your potential reader, but talk to me about the first time maybe you were aware that someone was going to read the short stories you were writing
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm thinking back now, I've channeled a childhood version of me as a short story writer here and um, (laughs) recalling, you know, I had a a middle school class where I was, the short stories I turned, I was definitely like, how can I hit the buttons of these people? How can I, you know, Mm. get um, some uh, laughter in this room and some like shock? in this room and, you know, so I'm like, what, what just happened? Um, and I was thinking, you know, I knew my classmates. So I, um, I think that's not an opportunity that a lot of writers get to uh, bring into the more general writing world of like, yeah, I, I literally know the, all the people who are gonna be reading this so I can tailor it to them. But definitely, you know, that's something that I carry a version of into my um, current writing life. I think more so there's like some really fantastic editors i've worked with over the years who exist as like kind of phantoms in my head Mm. as i write whose um voices i hear uh you know the cuts that they made the questions they asked i I bring that the spirit of those um cuts and questions into my own writing process um and so that's a big um element of how i think about how to make sure that the stuff i'm putting out is you know worthwhile to someone who might want to read it um the other thing that I do is a, sort of like a probability thing I guess that I don't think of myself as a, especially unique or or special uh, that there's like a lot of people out there like me um, who have uh, similar tastes you know sometimes I go oh I really like this and it turns out there's a whole world of people who really like that out there as well um, I know some people get demoralized by that but I'm actually like really encouraged by it because it gives me permission to like really sort of indulge my, Mm. um, interests and, um, idiosyncrasies and be like, I'm going to dive into this. I'm going to take the leap of like, just following this thread. And when I come out of it, I go, you know, like if there's a portion of me that honestly like believes that this is good and not just self-indulgent, uh, then probably there's another reader out there who will be like, Hey, this is a feeling that I needed to feel or, mm. um, an arc that I needed to go through or something that I also wanted to process. Um, You know, my experiences are human. And, uh, you know, I I go through the things that other people go through. I have my own life story, but, you know, there's a lot of overlaps between uh, what other people experience. So I I count on that uh, as a way to allow myself to, you know, get a little weird.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. There's so much that you covered there. I want to try to unpack uh, each thing sort of one by one. You talked first about having that early childhood classroom where you knew your audience and you wrote toward your audience. Um, You also talked about having a couple of editors' voices start to inhabit your mind. And that's really, really important. And I think it's overlooked. So I want to talk about your classroom, but I think first I want to dig into the editor's Um, and I'll relate my experience early on, especially, Uh, I read David Foster Wallace's Ticket to the Fair. Uh, I think it was published in the New Yorker, if I remember correctly, but it it was somewhat edited from the version that shows up in his book of essays. What caught me when I read it was this extravagantly long list of objects at the fair, all of the tastes, flavors, you know, the just it's so fully encompassed it, but it was encyclopedic in the way that it delivered that. And he instantly became a voice that spoke into my head when I wrote. And so I did probably what every literary bro does. And I started writing as best as I could, like David Foster Wallace. Um, That is profoundly important because there's an audience and there's a sabotage in there, I'm kind of curious to hear you reflect on on an equivalent situation for you where there's a voice in your head that maybe sabotages what you're actually trying to do, but also that informs how you develop as a writer because this grows into marketing for us.
1: Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And I think the comparison to the, like having the writer in your head, like the ones you admire is really apt. Um, One of the reasons I try to have the editor voice in my head a little bit more often or to rely on it more often it's because you know there's a I don't want to just end up sounding like the writers that I, that I like or whatever I mean I love the writers I like but i um, hoping to carve out some uh, I don't know DJ mix of my own and the editors also like the editor voice their specific role that they've played in in developing my writing was like challenging me and I think bringing that into my own process is just uh, like really helpful as opposed to like just my visionary ambition right like oh i wish i could be like this having that voice that's like actually when you go and do this move it it's not clear (laughs) um or if you add this many you know um iterations of the same uh sentiment it's you know one too many Mm -hmm. um and so having those times that people have said to me about what i thought was my best work actually it can be a little bit better um Mm -hmm. here's some ways you can do that um that is you know, those letters aren't always going to be with me. Right. So I try to uh, categorize a couple of the things that they uh, helped me go through. Um, and there's quite a few over the course of uh, uh, my opportunity to work with um, publications and I'm really grateful for all of them.
0: Yeah, that is a, that's a good perspective. I think even a more apt uh, response for me would have been to highlight the Strunk and white elements of style. That is a book that changed everything about how I wrote. I will never write the word utilize and you won't hear me speak it unless I'm criticizing it. (laughs) That's just one quick example. Um, So let's do talk now about the classroom environment because again, there's something really key about marketing. I'm guessing that there were some students you knew you weren't going to appeal to. You can't appeal to a whole room. Uh, Talk to me and, and you can generalize here. You don't actually have to use that classroom, but talk to me now about having that classroom environment where you're writing toward a segment of the people there. How do you know when your story is for somebody and when your story is not for somebody and how do you distinguish that?
1: That's a tough question. So it I mean, in that, in that circumstance, I should say, uh, you know, I was like in eighth grade, I was very much testing the waters. And so yeah. knowing is maybe a reach. <laughs> uh, but, um, I had, you know, relationships with people. And I think this maybe connects to something that's worth bringing up about just community building in general in writing. Um, But having these relationships where I knew a little bit about what made them laugh and, you know, what other things they were reading or watching or talking about, Um, the types of conversations that were animating, you know, my class, um, that helps inform, you know, whether or not, even if they're not going to like it, whether or not they're going to talk about it um afterward in a way that is not just you know like get rid of this guy um but to come back to the community building aspect like just like having some type of um intimacy with uh the types of folks who uh, might end up reading your work that's been a really important element of how I navigate um Mm -hmm. understanding where my work might need to land Where it might need to go, and you know, that building community is really broad. It's, uh, yes, you know, reading the types of publications that I hope to have my work live inside of, um, reading the writers who are in there and where they're taking their work elsewhere, finding out the types of things that they're reading and talking about, um, Mm -hmm. attending and participating in readings, um, you know, things that just kind of illuminate uh, the interior worlds of other writers readers um, so that I get a sense of it. And I really, one of the only tools that I have is like actually um, connecting with people. I'm, I'm not an especially adept, like reader of uh, statistical information about the demographics of people and able to channel that into, um, you know what type of sentences I should have. <laughs> um, it's, it's much more for me about um, like human relationships. Uh, there's some transfer of that that I can extrapolate info from, but uh, yeah, that's the foundation for me, I think.
0: So I think I want to try to build a constellation here and and try to sort of tie it all together. Um, but you're you're talking about community and the importance of of building that close community. Uh, I have a couple of people through Twitter that I've interacted with, and that's a primary place where I reach out. In fact, you and I connected through there originally. Um, but there is a a woman who writes, uh, children's mostly children's books. She does write some novels and other things, but she's published children's books. Her name is Elsie Young. And I didn't really think one way or the other. I knew she wasn't exactly my target audience, um, More so for the podcast, because I'm talking to any fiction writer who wants to be a better marketer, but also, you know, I'm, I'm a writer and I'm trying to build some overlap there too. And what ends up happening though, is that as you interact with somebody more and more and more, you build this level of trust and they move from the periphery of your community, a little bit closer to you and a little bit closer. And then some people you start messaging with almost more than you're actually interacting with them publicly. And she sent me this note this morning and was like, Hey, I met somebody that needed a little bit of mentoring and writing children's books. And the first thing I did was tell them about your podcast. And I was like, Oh man, that's amazing. That's what we're going for is trying to build that community where people recommend us, because if we can get that, it takes a lot of the heavy lifting off of our shoulders you're a short story writer primarily. So talk to me a little bit about that piece of community, because it is really hard to sell short stories in the first place. It's the next hardest thing to poems.
1: Yeah. You know, um, it's interesting. That short stories also offer a sort of middle ground because like, mm-hmm. if, if you're impatient, um, you yeah. know, there's a lot of literary journals out there. There's a lot of magazines that, um, you can get, you know, a story at a time out there into the world. Um, which as opposed to like putting out a book of short stories, you know, you get a little bit quicker uh, sense of like, all right, this has uh, reached some sort of completion. Yeah. Um, and I will say there's been a dramatic shift um, that I've seen in uh, the broader publishing world's um, approach or appreciation of short story collections as a book. Mm-hmm. When I first started um, submitting my, my first story collection, um, a lot of agents and publishers well, it got back to me saying like, mm, give me a novel and mm-hmm. then we'll do the short story after. Yeah. And I was like, well, that's not what I have. Uh, <laughs> and I've seen a, a much greater kind of like interest in um, and a, a greater array of uh, short story com- collections coming out for the first book that a writer puts out. Um, and I think that it has shifted over the years and I'm happy about that as I <laughs> begin yeah. thinking about uh, putting another one out there in the world.
0: Have there been people who have shamelessly promoted your work and how has that impacted the people that read your stories?
1: Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, something about the speed of publishing short stories allows you to, you know, build communities somewhat quickly, right? Like meet a bunch of new editors, meet a bunch of new readers at like a sort of rapid pace, faster than the put out a book pace. Right. (laughs) Um, And that has afforded me the opportunity to encounter some folks who are champions of short stories in general and who were kind enough to also be champions of my work uh you know just and a lot of these are just random chance encounters which is one of the reasons i sort of love the that speed i'm talking about with which you can do some of the short story movement that you just kind of increase your luck surface area or something like you um by increasing the surface area of encounter some of these random things can occur uh, more often and You know, one person I kind of randomly randomly met uh, through other writers at a reading uh, that was happening. Um, That's the that's the kernel that led to my work ending up on uh, selected shorts and on NPR. And like, it wasn't me alone making that happen. It's, you know, just kind of the luck of putting myself out there a lot and encountering someone who was like, hey, I I think this is a good fit. Um, And that's really just from the, you know, the surface area of opportunity. That yeah.
0: I remember, uh, and this is years ago now, but uh, Pieces of the Left Hand by J. Robert Lennon, uh, he was featured on, on NPR. I was listening and heard a couple of segments. Actually, they're they're all very short stories, but um, I wasn't even aware of him as a person. And he went on to be one of my more favorite uh, authors because I heard that little segment on NPR. And so I want to ask you in in terms of, reach do things like that really help your reach is it something that a uh, short story writers should pursue or do you take it if it comes i mean both <laughs>
1: um i mean I, I i think just like to go back to the just increased surface area thing just yeah building a larger bubble of like where your work could have some luck it, it seems like a good idea to me um yeah. i don't know the degree to which um um know my work ending up on selected shorts like impacted or did not impact the reach of of my work i you know Mm -hmm. i just there's no there's no way for me to like actually read the numbers on that sure sure. Um, but it was part of a confluence of events that i think overall like all the stuff that went around the um uh, launch of my first story collection i think contributed to it being received uh, moderately well, you know like okay by folks and, and finding some readers who were were excited by it um and like a lot of different small um efforts i think were mm. helpful and, and i I would be hard pressed to pinpoint like the one that hit the switch. I think the approach that my publishers took of like of casting a wide net mm. and knowing that they were a small publisher, like starting out uh how how could they um you know get it out there. And, uh, they, they did a lot of creative unique things to, um, get it into the hands of people that, uh, yeah, again, I don't know if a single one of them was, uh, the,
0: the one catalyst. Sure. So do you feel like publishing with a, a small press, you had to be even more front and center for marketing efforts yourself? Yeah.
1: I mean, I was happy to be, uh, to partner with them on that, it was fun. I mean, you know, the, yeah. I think of my writing as in, happening in like two modes. You know, I have to make the stuff, and then it's my responsibility to participate and kind of shepherding it out into the universe. Um, and I was really grateful for the opportunity to like get creative with my publishers and think of some unique ways to do it. Like they did a a big pre-sale campaign um, to um entice people to pre-order the book and you know we had a lot of fun with the yeah possible like perks that people could get um you know one of them nobody took us up on it was we were willing to burn the entire first print run of the book if somebody paid us ten thousand dollars i love it but we did get a couple of people to give us um five hundred dollars uh for just one copy of the book nice. um, i think that was in exchange for me writing them a short story uh, mm-hmm. a personalized one Um, we gave away a goat. Um, we we partnered with Marina Abramovich, uh, to give away, she, she donated nothing, uh, to the campaign and people could buy that. So, you know, maybe you can hear my voice too. It excites me. Like this was, of course, yeah, this was fun. Um, and I try, you know, with anything related to like the marketing or getting the word out of my book to have it be infused with some element of like who I think of myself as an artist and hmm. uh, to also be able to enjoy it because, you know, a lot of artists look at marketing and feel really like, Oh, you know, I'm anti that or it's yeah. so dry or like really alien to me. And I think there is a way to infuse the um, art, you know, the elements of your art into that process as well. You know, not always, but I think there's opportunities for it.
0: I absolutely love that, and I think that I don't talk about it enough on this show. That there are elements of marketing that can be tremendously creative, uh, and it sounds like you you were full bore. How much of that was a collaborative process? Uh, like, for example, the goat was that? Was you did you just come home one night and you're like, you know, we should give away a goat as a way to market the book? And, and like, how'd that conversation go?
1: Yeah, I mean, the opening story in that collection is about um, a town that. Um, becomes just overrun by goats. Um, mm-hmm. and so it felt, I think, appropriate. I think that was the publisher's idea to be like, oh, well, I think there's a service that we can do a goat donation. Um, <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, this is great. So a lot of them came out of like, what are the ideas in the book and how can we match them to kind really? of a like fun or funny uh, potential you know, reward for people? Um, and it was definitely collaborative. They were asking me questions the entire way that I definitely felt free to say, Hey, what if we tried this? Um, mm. You know, we worked with a magazine, I think it was Jellyfish Review to um, connect with other writers and artists to make pieces and reaction uh, to the stories um, and put out kind of like a little one-off magazine with Jellyfish to uh, put all that work out. And, you know, I was able to recommend writers and artists that I love to have contribute. And so I felt really connected to the process the whole time. It was uh,
0: a real joy. So it sounds to me like you've just had an overall fun experience with marketing your books. And I'm curious, why do you think so many writers feel like marketing is terrible?
1: You know, there's a lot of, well, there's a lot of pressure to it, right? And I think the metrics we set um, for our participation in it might be one of the things that make it feel awful. I think the main metric I set actually was enjoy it.
0: Yeah,
1: and let the numbers like speak for themselves after that. I mean, we're here in the present moment. this is the world we live in, trying to say, you know, I'm gonna determine my joy uh, by some future set of numbers um, is a recipe for not feeling very good. I mm. think so instead investing in how much can I make this process feel, like um true to me and um human to me and you know in line with the type of art that i like um that made it bearable and exciting and i think a lot of folks i don't think give themselves permission to do that because marketing is uh presented to us as something that needs to be about those those other metrics um and i think just Throwing those out uh, was what uh, was helpful to me.
0: <laughs> There's something almost intangible that I can't exactly get at, but something you're talking about is true. And this is the part of the conversation, the, the constellation in the conversation that I wanted to wrap back around to this idea of, of writing for ourselves versus writing for an audience. So I asked you in the beginning, you know, when are you conscious that you started writing for somebody else? And because it's a really popular phrase. I've been talking a lot about it on this show, you know, write for yourself. That's true. We do. We have to write for ourselves. Um, What you're talking about is, I think, where these things knit together, market for yourself. Uh, You did something that appealed to you. You engaged with it in a way where you're like, this is something I can do that I'll have fun with. Uh, I think about health for me. Um, There are different kinds of exercise that I tend to enjoy more and types of exercise I hate. That high intensity interval training, you won't find me ever doing that. There are some people who are super dedicated to it, but it sucks all the joy out of my life to have to sprint as hard as I can. I just am not not into it. Uh, There are things I like. I like making this podcast, knowing that it is getting my name out there, um, that it's a free resource to people, that I'm making these connections. You liked engaging in the marketing process with your publisher and being collaborative and having those ideas. So this is less of a conversation. I guess I'm I'm inviting you to speak on the connection between writing for yourself and marketing for yourself and how those things kind of go hand in hand and how they might unlock a mindset for somebody that can propel them forward.
1: Yeah. Uh I, I like the way you put it. I really like that exercise analogy. I'm very similar. Like I only do exercises that I enjoy. Love yeah. riding my bike, do it all the time. Yes. I don't try to and i hate doing push-ups so <laughs> yeah not my <laughs> regimen. Um, and it's true that i think that's pretty similar to my approach to the you know like marketing for myself um and i would say you know i really like you know i really like performance art i really like um you know the God, what were those guys called the uh, no i can't remember the name of this group of artists from the like 60s and 70s like the situationists you know yeah. like they were all about like creating um you know, unique situations. I mean, it's more complex than that. But, you um, know, uh, I'm a fan of things like that. And there, I there's a way to see uh, marketing as similar to that, as something that other people are going to experience. Um, and that way it's very similar to writing um, and trying to invest in that experience and curate that experience in a way that, um, you know, both achieves an ambition, but also is like true to you is, it's definitely one of the ways I think about it. Um, and I also, I don't know how to describe this i mean both writing and in the stuff that i've done around marketing like i i want to help foster something that feels um unique um that feels um enjoyable and feels also like it has some like rigor to it um and I I don't think of that as unique to any particular discipline. Like I think anything you're doing, you know, you can bring that to. And so, um, you know, freeing yourself to treat it similarly is um, well, just, I guess, one of the ways maybe I'm lying to myself about how to approach it, but it's one of the ways I maybe trick myself into Mm -hmm. being like, I I can give a lot of energy to this. Whereas, you know, it could be very easy to be like, ah, I don't like this part, but.
0: There have been, a handful of novelists and writers who have been naturally good at the marketing process. And I'm also thinking, cause you use that phrase, trick myself into something. I do think that that's part of what we have to do. I'm writing a marketing book right now and it's not my favorite thing to write. I have to handle it in a couple of different ways. One is I have to inject my own personal stories into it and try to use them as uh, analogies or metaphors for principles. And that does make it more enjoyable because it brings it back toward that fiction, that short story element almost, um, and in the form, but there's still the telling part where I'm telling you, this is the mindset you need to cultivate. And I don't like telling it's not my natural mode. Interacting on Twitter can be really fun, but it can be tedious coming up with questions to try to bring people in and build this community can be tedious when you talk about tricking yourself, do you think that you can actually do that? Or do you bargain with yourself as much as anything?
1: Um, you know, I, I would say less bargaining, more tricking. Right. <laughs> um, and because I, I the bargaining doesn't work for me. Like the treat day doesn't work, if yeah. it's work on my health or whatever. That doesn't work for me. Like actually establishing some kind of routine, bring it to the food metaphor, mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, a routine that like feels sustainable to me and foods that I like, you know, yeah, that's what's going to work. Um, and that's, it's similar to, um, the process of helping people connect with my work, you know, like something I really enjoy doing is reading and performing my work. And so I try to cultivate opportunities for me to do that. Um, and that has a way for me to introduce my work to people that, um, I think has been effective. And at the same time, I enjoy it. It also helps my writing. So there's a little Mm. bit of a feedback loop there that I think is really healthy for me. Um, But yeah, I, I, I don't think I could very easily um, contribute to a marketing process that feels like, Oh, this is a real slog. You know, I hate this. Mm -hmm. Um, It's real annoying. Um, I think I, even if I knew that there were going to be components of it that are like that, Mm -hmm. Uh, for myself, I think I would need to construct a sort of game to play uh, with it yeah. in order to really get through it.
0: <laughs> that's great. I think that that's fantastic. I um, It's actually challenging me to rethink some of the processes. Two things came up for me when you were talking about that. One is I shouldn't be so scared to hire a couple of things out. If I really hate them, there are some some just sort of tedious processes that I have to go through. And I could probably find somebody inexpensively to work a couple hours a week and take that stuff off my plate. But you also mentioned that you really like doing public readings. Uh, and I'm guessing that, that a good number of the people listening in don't love that. Uh, it's not most writers' favorite thing to stand in front of a microphone mm-hmm. and an audience uh, and make that process meaningful. Uh, I've been to some terrible readings by authors I love. like People just, for whatever reason, they have no charisma, spoken word. What do you think is your mindset? Did you always enjoy it? Was there a way that you cracked that nut and started to enjoy it? Uh, I'm I'm really curious because that could be a game changer for some people.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've always um, been terribly afraid of it, and <laughs> also always enjoyed it, uh, and I think those go together very well. That's true. Mm. My writing as well. That my I feel a sense of achievement in my writing when I'm afraid of. Mm where i'm going with it and that's true for the uh reading it a lot of stuff and you know i say i like it and that's helpful for me and i totally recognize it's not something that everybody enjoys or is going to use in their like tool set of how they uh engage you know help their work engage publicly um, but at the same time i actually do believe that pretty much uh you know most writers um could um make that a useful part of what they're doing. Um, I I think it's similar to the marketing thing that there's a, there's an image, um, a conception of how readings and readers are supposed to behave and, um, a composure that's supposed to embody that space. And I think allowing yourself to say, I'm going to make it me, I'm going to make it my version of it can be exciting, can be fun, can, um, help people see you like come through that process. And, you know, I, I think uh, this is going to maybe sound a little uh, simple, but one of the tricks that feels most important to me in that, and that divides like when I hear a reading that I like versus one that I don't, is like reading the work like you believe it. Um, and I think there is a, a style of reading that's like, you need to be like the, the blank page or like the, the page of a book without any affectation, you know, like present the words as they are and let them speak for themselves and, you know, teach their own. But I uh, I, I, think for me, the like feeling the integrity that goes into the words and what people and, and, and the belief that undergirds those words adds a lot when I hear other people read um, and feels like a real gift when I get to hear that, you know, there's a continuum of how extreme that can be. But um, hmm. that's the that's the main uh, component for me that i think doing a reading uh, or hearing
0: a reading uh, becomes worthwhile I, I love this subject because uh, a good reading you know when you've been to it and it has a huge impact uh, i've never done one before um of where i had anything to sell uh, I've, I've read short stories that i published in different journals and been parts of events like that and uh, I really do like that process, but I I have to imagine that you can kind of feel the energy and see the difference in the number of copies that you're able to sell afterward. So I've got two more questions. This one is in terms of a reading, there is a part of you that has expectations on the number of copies that you want to sell. Does that have an impact on your mindset or the way that you treat people? There are
1: readings where I make sure that I read my the best thing I got (laughs) and there are readings where I go, I'm gonna see how this goes. Awesome. I think that's maybe one difference, but I think also I take a maybe slightly different approach to the relationship between doing a reading and sales um, that I think I primarily look at an opportunity to read my work aloud with a group of people there as like a learning experience for Mm me uh, because I get to see how these lines how these ideas land like in real time with people um, there's laughter or there's some whatever a, a gasp or something mm-hmm. um, that's really helpful for me. And then to be able to often process a little bit of that right afterward with folks who were there, you know, sometimes friends or colleagues are there. I'm able to kind of make sense of what worked and what didn't. So I primarily view it as a learning experience and also as um, a kind of like benchmark for myself, uh, an ambition for myself to be able to write uh, pieces that fit into that time slot mm. and into that um, window that will have an impact um, like that smaller crunch like that. And, and to make even portions of stories uh, function that way, like that's that's a helpful, you know, thinking of my eighth grade class, I guess. Uh, yeah. Or Larry. And then rather than thinking about selling the books in that moment, Mm-hmm. I, I would go back to the like surface area of um, what's possible uh, mm-hmm. being increased by being in that room with those people. Yes. Some folks might buy a book after um, but yeah. I'm more interested in the like sustaining some building, sustaining some connections with folks who may appreciate my work and where that's going to, where it's going to take my work and my relationship with other people.
0: The, the last question I have for you is, is the way that I envision this process, I want to make it in some sense uncomfortable for uh, the writer. And so I focus on what I call the seven-figure marketing mindset. People's first thought always goes toward money, which is not the only thing I'm talking about in terms of seven-figure. I want to have uh, a million followers on Twitter. I want to have a million copies sold. And I do want to make a million dollars on my book, probably in that order actually. I mean, you're not going to make a million dollars. If you sell a million copies of your book, you're going to make quite a bit less, especially if you publish traditionally like you did. Um, and so one is going to follow the other, but in all ways you talked about, you know, reaching further, having more, you used a specific term and I apologize. I'm not remembering it right now, but basically just surface area, I think is bigger. Um, when you hear that term seven figure marketing mindset, what's your comfort level? And, how would it change what you were doing if you started to think of things in that scale?
1: That's a compelling question. Um, <laughs> uh, and I'll get like to the direct answer in a moment, but it, it makes me think of, um, recently I was really interested in just what the writing process looks like for um, video games. And so I studied with some folks who've been writing for video games for like 40 years. And their approach to writing was very much more in line with this, like, how do we um, syndicate it? How do we, you know, turn it into, um, you know, like a, like a brand, not just, mm. here's this piece of art. And, you know, they're artists and they, they make right. uh and, and craftsmen, uh, and they, you know, they make things that are wonderful and beautiful, but they're also, it's a part of their process to think about how is this gonna be turned into merchandise? You know, how is this gonna be wow. uh, turned into, you know, options for a film? Um, and that's a part of their creative process. That, mm. I will be honest, I actually they rubbed me the, the wrong way a little bit. Let's just not have <laughs> okay. how right. I approach the creation of uh right. how I engage with art. Um sure. I was was grateful to hear it and to hear the perspective and to and to see the degree to which it's possible mm. that they are also like have a lot of integrity about what they're making at the same time. Like it's not yeah. like one or the other. So I think that's definitely possible. However, about the uh seven-figure uh book deal thing. Um, and like selling a million copies. Um, You know, there's a lot of books out there. You know, you look at like the bestseller list, uh, books that are selling a lot of copies and the the Venn diagram of books that I really love Mm -hmm. and books that are selling a lot of copies. It's a a thin, it's a pretty thin overlap. And so that, not that I'm, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say no to a million people buying a book by me. (laughs) I'm not going to say no to that, but I also don't think I'm going to make it the metric by which I like uh, grow as an artist and like and pursue my writing. And I also like to kind of flip it a little bit, uh, maybe like flip the concept that I like to, con- I want writer- readers to be buying a million books and maybe some of them will be mine. And then I'm contributing to an ecosystem that is full of what readers might need or might appreciate. Um, a way to escape, to process, to uh, feel connection. And that I have something that can help grow that forest Mm. um, where a million and more books are bought and sold. And I'm excited to be, you know, like I want to be in that conversation Um, and, and making that forest include the things that I and people like me think are important and need to feel and go through. That's a a metric that I feel is achievable. And also, you know, to go back to the surface area thing, opens up a possibility that maybe a bunch of people will buy that book um, or I'll make some money from it. Um, But I think it's first that attendance to growing the thing that I believe in Mm -hmm. and contributing to it being a part of um, a larger ecosystem where, you know, readers are finding what they need
0: everything you said there is really profound. I like it. And I think that it reflects a lot of the ways that I feel about what I'm trying to achieve with people and getting their book into more people's hands, but also understanding if you hang your your hat on, I'm only successful if I have a million of one of those things, yeah. it's, uh, yeah, it's going to be miserable for you. Um, but there is something crazy that changes in the way that we think about what we're doing when we try to uh, like going back to what you're talking about, gamify our way to a million of something because it's such a big number. It's really hard to conceive of. Uh, when I said a million Twitter followers first, I was like, of course, I'm going to get there. Time will get me there. But at the same time, uh, I have like 13,000 right now. I am so far away. I a this st- like statistical insignificance on that particular spectrum at this moment. Um, and yet I still am doing so much better than so many other people around me in that lane. So I think this is a, a a great place to end. I wish we could talk more about the video game thing. Um, yeah. And I think that that's a fascinating thing that they're doing. Uh, I also really love how you understand that there's sacrifices you make to a certain kind of art. If you're writing short stories, yes, they're gaining in popularity, but they're probably not going to be the Stephen King novel. Although he does write great short stories, I will yeah. admit. Um, but yeah. Really fantastic. Uh, tell everybody where they can find you, where they can pick up your books uh, and how you want them to connect with you.
1: Great. Yeah. Um, first off, Jody, it's been a pleasure being on here. Uh, this was a really fun conversation. And you, yeah. um, you know, I'm on Twitter at Dolan Morgan. I, if you're going to look for a book for me, I recommend that's when the knives come down. It's a collection of short stories. And you can get that where books are sold. Um, I recommend getting it directly from the publisher, aforementioned uh, Productions, um, just because that makes sure the um, you know least dollars are yeah. <laughs> siphoned off to whoever. Um, it goes more back to uh, people making books like that. Um, and then you know, find me out in the world uh, at a at a reading or um, you know attending a reading and say hello. Uh,
0: hey if you've gotten all the way through this episode and through the credits music you are now hearing a story about the goats of baker city oregon it was back in the year of 2014. i was running a route for a sunglasses sales company just literally delivering sunglasses to gas stations out of the back of my trunk in baker city was one of the last stops on a very long route for me. It was a five hour drive from Spokane and I was exhausted when I got there. And the worst part was there was a manager at the gas station that I serviced who hated me. There was nothing I could do because she had lost her former beloved sunglasses sales rep when I took over that piece of territory. So she made my life about as hard as any human being has ever made any other person's life. And for that reason, I thought about the entire town of Baker City as a hellhole. I just couldn't stand going. I dreaded it. That's why when in 2015, a herd of goats at the top of the mountain in Baker City began pooping in the water supply, in the river that went down and supplied the town with water, causing a terrible bacteria to take hostage the entire city and forcing all the residents to subsist on bottled water. I was, I hate to confess it, a little bit giddy at that. And in retrospect, that makes me a bad person because really wishing poorly on anybody is, is not a good look. But I just felt like those goats we're communicating my spirit to the manager. I'd like to think I'm a better person now. But that's the goat story of Baker City, Oregon. Thanks again for listening.